We're building a house. We're building a community. You know, we're trying to be siblings to one another's house sisters, house brothers, house mothers, house fathers, house parents to one another. Welcome back to the Multicultural Middle Ages. We are happy to share with you our exciting and timely second episode on the convergence of trans studies and medieval studies, hosted by Anna Klosowska. Join us for this exciting conversation with Gabriel Bihowski, Blake Gutt, Clovis Maye, and Micah Goodrich. I will now pass the mic to Professor Klosowska, who will introduce our speakers. Gabby Bihowski, who is the face of trans studies in the U.S., award-winning editor and author. Gabby is an activist and works on mostly Middle English literature, but also French. Gabby's pieces on trans studies survey pieces are quoted by all of the people who are working in this field. The next person I'll introduce is Clévis Maillet. Clévis Maillet is um, the trans studies in France. Jean Fluvide, the book that just was published last fall, is currently out of print because the publisher is reprinting, so it's a second run of it. I am teaching it in two classes, and we are constantly talking about this book. It is something that we all need. That book is just so essential. Clavis put together all of the texts that have to do with trans saints, and also a lot of texts that, that are really useful tables in that book. And Clavis May is not only a trans studies scholar, they're also a performance artist and an art historian and teach university art criticism and art history courses. So their latest book is co-written with Goldsen, and it's on uh, medievalism. So my favorite quotable part of the blurb is, Design students today think that artisanal practices are going to save the arts and that witches will get rid of patriarchy. Let's examine that from a medievalist point of view. So now moving on to Blake Gatt. When I ask my students, have you read any trans theory? They say, yes, of course. We've read Blake Gatt's and Alicia Spencer volume uh, that was published by Amsterdam University Press. Everybody. Everybody has read the volume. It's very recognizable. Jonah Common's beautiful cover, pieces by, by Blake and uh, Gabby Behoski in this book, are really the hallmark of last year's publications in trans studies. Everybody knows that book. Everybody loves that. All of my students have read it and have a copy. And Blake has been publishing a lot. We've read uh, his piece on Christine de Pizan's Mutation de Fortune. We've read so much of his work, and he's been training new trans studies literary scholars as well. And finally, Micah Goodrich. Micah's piece on disability and Pierce Plowman and maiming is truly the most talked about. If there's one or two pieces from our published collection, uh, Transhistorical Gender Priority Before the Modern, is Gabby's piece on Reichner and Micah's piece on disability studies and the intersection with trans studies. That piece is absolutely the most exciting conversation. My students tell me it summarizes Pierce Plowman very well. It summarizes disability studies and Foucault's idea of biopolitics very well. So this is something that the students constantly look back to. I'm going to ask the first question of Gabby. So Gabby, tell us, 
when you got the award for your for your edited journal issue and the article, how did it feel? Did it change anything? Thank you, Anna. In the world of co-conspirators and collaborators, the active form of allyship, Anna is really right up there and has been really a champion, leveraging her position and her resources to make many of these ha things happen, and especially in the case of transhistorical, making it affordable, um, because she saw, as, as, we did, as did we all, that this is not just work that is being directed towards the academy, though that, of course, is one of our big targets. We're a part of a wider cultural shift and a sort of seismic rethinking of, of the past. And it's, it's not only shifting the sort of erasure of trans people to suddenly sort of remarking on them and then letting them speak uh, from their place in the archives, but also uh, rethinking the, the assumed grounds that cisgender people walked in as well. But to your question of how it felt to win that award for medieval transfeminism, an introduction, it's not just an honor, it's, it's a matter of identity in many ways that... You know, it's something that is regularly I've returned to again in my scholarship. There's so much uncertainty in, in academia. There's so much uncertainty just being a trans person, and I'll say especially being a trans woman in this, in this world. There's no guarantee that an impact will hit and have the type of resonance that you want. And the fact that that collection, which came out a couple years ago, which I co-edited with Dorothy Kim, has made an impact and has been lifted up by the medieval feminist society, it speaks to impact. But it also, again, speaks to if success and even longevity is not guaranteed, I often have to ask myself the question, if I'm, there's no guarantees, how am I going to approach it so that the approach itself is worth doing? whether or not the success is there. And to have one of the first stones put down be one on feminism was incredibly important to me. And again, that goes back to, again, that question of identity and identity through methodology. When I think of myself and my scholarship, I think of myself as a feminist. And trans studies is an integral part of that. As, as, a, as a woman, as a trans woman, um, but also someone who has seen the importance and the fight that feminism has had to have in conversations over the past, which have been so and continue to be so male-dominated, and not just male-dominated in terms of representation of scholars, but also the type of scholarship being done and what's considered the standard still is very patriarchal, still very white, that white patriarchy setting the tone. So to have, to, to, ha to lay that stone with, the sort of identity of feminism strongly applied is important. And also because one of the groups that unfortunately has had a resurgence in recent years is what has been described within the group as gender critical feminism. Many of us know it as trans excluding radical feminism or TERFs um, has unfortunately been a, again, an old foe sort of like some other foes that we've seen uh, re resurge that we thought were gone for decades, um, old problems coming anew, and the the leveraging of a certain kind of white femininity speaking the patriarchal language 
to exclude trans people from spaces and from scholarship, making going to school hard for trans kids and teachers to get hired. And wrapping that in the flag of feminism is a crime. It's a crime not only to trans people, but it's a crime to feminism. Um, so that was incredibly important. Um, and the last thing I'll say before handing it over is that the conversation, of course, does, and this, this, this speaks to the moment we're in as trans people, but also the moment in where we are as medievalists, and that medieval identity is very important, that one of the consequences of that announcement was a great deal of not only transphobia and anti-trans sentiment being directed towards me on social media, but as mostly for male scholars, um, but particularly sexism. A lot of the things they were saying to me have been said in degrading ways to other women in the field. And, you know, it was only, I was on the road and it was a couple hours later, you know, I was sort of shining from, from, the, from the news, so proud for Dorothy Kim, for our other contributors that they were able to hold this honor. But then to get the message from some of the people here, Micah and Blake, of Gabby, don't go on social media right now. And to have them sort of step up as, as my, I, you know, I'm, I like to say I'm one of the few sort of trans women that have gotten to a position where I have some level of publishing. I'm able to teach at a, at a major university. To be one of the few trans women who are in that kind of position, I'm so grateful to have trans men <laughs> to kind of flank me. It's, it, it's rather flattering, uh, frankly, um, but also so important to have have them both as scholars and brilliant minds, but also as community members that we, we look out for each other. And so I, I really appreciate that. Clavis, my question to you, so in addition to what Gabby just said, you've published Jean Fluide, a book that flies off the shelves, is taught everywhere in the US. Um, what was the most unexpected insight from that work? Really a big surprise was that I was really writing this book for a French audience and I wrote it in French and also because I knew that I had read, I mean, all of you, but would never have expected that you would have read this book that was really meant for a French audience. And so I'm quite astonished that uh, it has something to tell also uh, to um, US audience where I think that trans studies have been going much further than what happened uh, in uh, in French. And so it's, uh, it's a great thing way of encouraging this kind of research to see that uh, it can create also a dialogue between our countries that are uh, so far from each other. And what I really hope is that we can increase this kind of uh, discussions between all of us. And that's also what we've been uh, trying to do, organizing a symposium in Paris. We're trying to mixing up people from all around the world because I am so astonished to see uh, how trend studies, medieval trend studies can go. And this is really what I'm surprised, but also very happy to see happening. Thank you so much. This is fantastic. Let me now turn to Micah. Micah, your chapter in Transhistorical and Disability and the Law of Mains in Pierce Plowman is one of the most important chapters in that collection. And I remember working through this chapter and realizing slowly, you know, step by step in the editing process, how important the chapter was. And now it's sort of just, just, just an amazing process. I've taught it in two different settings already, and I know that I'll be teaching it. It's, it's one of these pieces that I'll be teaching for the foreseeable future. What insights did you gain in the process of writing that fundamental essay? 
Yeah, I, I think, you know, that, that particular chapter really took so many different turns and it didn't start as a trans studies piece, right? And I think that was sort of the the part of working through that that was so sort of changing for me in my own scholarship, right? Like it, it sort of spoke back to a lot of things that I was working on uh, in my book that I hadn't quite seen as a kind of like trans methodology that then emerged that way. So I'm, I'm really interested in sort of these questions about capacity, right? And how, how capacity is valued, how the framework of embodiment is, you know, something that is sort of suspended at all accounts and used by different powers and forces to, you know, shape logics. And I think, you know, we're seeing a lot of a similar conversation happening with, right, the sort of alt-right, hyper-conservative focus on LGBTQ, especially like trans military, right, uh, sort of inclusion right now with uh, conversations on Russia and Ukraine. So like, for instance, Ben Shapiro was, you know, just tweeting a couple days ago about how the U.S. military has like feminized itself and weakened itself, uh, right? Like, yeah, and who cares uh, what he has to say particularly, but this constant idea that the body is supposed to be equipped and capable to act for particular institutional aims and means, right? And that there's sort of a connection between, right, the individual body and like the social body that gets sort of in our modern moment, but also in the medieval, right, like filtered through a like racialized and gendered and sort of lens of capacity, bodily capacity. And I think it's a really helpful framework uh, to think about a pre-modern trans studies, right? That's not necessarily about recovering trans experience or recovering trans history, which is critically important and incredible work. But what I'm sort of doing is a little bit different in thinking about how we can use our experiences as right, like trans people and trans scholars to think about the temporal stretching of the past can help us look to the past to think about the future of gender in different sort of categories that aren't necessarily about personhood, but rather about vectors of power. Maybe I will turn it over now to Blake. Blake, your collection is the best known medieval trans studies collection out there. Everybody has a copy. The cover itself is this wonderful, wonderful commentary on the present and the past. It has, Jonah Common is this artist who uh, makes pangzines. Pangzines are the way that people communicate in the queer and trans communities in urban contexts in Europe and here in the US. And it's it's just this wonderful, wonderful commentary. Somebody said it's, it's like the present crash landed in the past, right? Uh, so tell us a little bit about that, that collection. Everybody says it's just such a useful collection. The glossary, everybody mentions the glossary as one of its great advantages, the index, Gabby and Blake's chapters in it. This is a, a, a major contribution to our field. What was the unexpected thing you've learned by putting together this collection? Thank you so much for your very kind words about this collection. I mean, I'm very proud of it, and I'm also a fairly small part of putting it all together. And whenever I talk about this volume, I'm talking about work that was done by 
13 people, if I include um, myself and my co-editor, Alicia Spencer-Hall, then our contributors who, who wrote chapters, and also John Coleman, of course, who, who designed this absolutely beautiful collage for the front cover, which is the title of the work is, I believe, We Have Always Been Here. So, you know, that really tells you what it's, it's, it's mixing the, 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 the modern and the medieval together and showing the persistence of a queer thread which runs all the way through. Yeah, and, and you mentioned the glossary. That was, that was I guess we, we saw the glossary as kind of an, an ethical requirement, I guess. The two kind of, and, and I really have to thank Alicia for this. She was the originator of this project and, and also kind of put in place this ethical backbone, which was these two things. One was we wanted to include work by as many trans and genderqueer scholars as we could. We know that, they're, uh, that they are there and they're doing this fantastic and groundbreaking work. So we wanted to include as many people, you know, who were writing about things that they felt very personally and that they had those very strong embodied insights into. And then the second thing was that was the glossary, which we, we wanted it to be free. We wanted it to be available. In Alicia's words, but were basically, you know, now people won't have an excuse to get it wrong because we've, we've created this resource for them. It's free. It's available. But the other thing I always have to say when I talk about the, the usage guide, uh, the glossary, is that it's inevitably a work in process. Things change so much. There are a few things I can think of that I wish I had had time to but also because there's always this lag between when you're working on something and when it's published there are already things i wish that we could have included or changed or updated a little bit and that's why uh, we hope that this is going to be something which will continue to evolve and be updated and to change and one of the ways that it's going to change is that we are very close to publishing um, a translation into French, which, which Clovis has prepared for us. Uh, we have other translators working on translations into Spanish, Catalan and Greek at the moment. We've had this incredible kind of enthusiasm from people who have wanted to make this more available. You know, we really, really appreciate that. Um, and speaking, since I'm kind of speaking around the question of labour and paying for things, the thing we regret most about the book is that it is so expensive. And as Gabby brought up, what talking about the uh, trans historical collection, one thing that's really fantastic about that is its affordability. Uh, Alicia and I, uh, you know, we have again as part of our ethical commitment to to making this available to as many people as possible, and particularly to as many trans and genderqueer and questioning people as possible. If you can't get access to a copy of it, then please email me, email Alicia. We will do our best to find a way to get you to get you a copy. I don't know. I, so the, your actual question, I think, was um, what was the most surprising insight that we came upon while we were working on the book? Well, I'll speak for myself right now. One of the contributions that I'm particularly proud of is Martha Newman's contribution because she had written about this documented historical character known, known as Brother Joseph. He was, a, he was a monk who died in a German monastery and after his death was thought by his brother monks when they saw his bodily, you know, his, his physiology, they decided, oh, this must actually be a woman and they actually renamed him after his death and gave him a name which he had never used in life. So Martha had previously written about this person as a woman disguised as a man. And what I really appreciate about her work is the way that she came back to that text. She saw it in a very different way by, by using the insights of trans studies. She read this character as a trans man. But at the same time, she held on to the 
equivocacies of that text because oh it's written in the first person it's written by Engelhard he's like a third party who is writing as he's ventriloquizing Joseph and writing as if he is Joseph but he is not and so there are all these really really interesting gaps and kind of uncertainties that arise there and although you know one of the things that I was able to provide for example in the editing process was to say okay here are some here is here is a kind of standard trans reading of the text what Martha actually came up with was something that I hadn't even thought of that took the text beyond the obvious possibilities for reinterpretation that I had originally seen where she presented she read that she did something which I really like to do with medieval texts which is read it literally and in this literal reading, uh, which I think is far too often ignored, you know, we get these very strange interpretations of texts and particularly texts with representations of non-normative gender identities where people kind of read over the top of them and they add or take away things to, to make it mean what they think it means or what they think it ought to mean. Uh, but when you read them literally, you know, you find some really fascinating things. And what Martha found by reading this text literally was we can we can read this text as a miracle of a young man who was assigned female at birth, finding his true identity and devoting his his life to God and discovering who he really is in this through a series of miracles, which which are figured as a series of rebirths. But we can also read the text as telling us that this young man was always a young man and that the real miracle was that after his death, his body was transformed into the body of a woman, which is the experience that his fellow monks had when they were preparing for burial, this the body of a, you know a man they had known for some time and knew as a man and found something which surprised them and which they considered miraculous. I mean, that's what I want, I guess, for the future of trans studies that it should keep surprising us and taking us in directions that we we weren't expecting, and it it does keep doing that for me, and that's something that I really love about trans studies. Clauses. So this volume that you published is just tremendous. But uh, let's think about in 2030. What do you think your trans studies book will be like? Thank you. In fact, I'm, I'm already, um, I am writing it. And I, I wanted to do like a second volume that would be a trans-feminine history of the Middle Ages. I hope, but I, I know that a more difficult subject because trans masculinity is easily accessible in the Middle Ages because there are so many saints that were so uh, published at the time, whereas uh, trans femininity uh, can be all, only approached uh, through uh, hidden places. And so there is a lot of work to do with that, but I think it would be really relevant and uh, indispensable to have this second volume, although it might be uh, missing uh, some of uh, many trans women that I'm sure were living during the Middle Ages and will never be discovered because maybe they didn't want to be known and didn't want to be discovered uh, because their life was uh, just okay. So that's what I'm, I'm working on. And I'm, and I'm also working on, a, on another book really dedicated to the life of Eugenius and uh, iconographical tradition from Rome to Catalonia and to Burgundy and maybe going back to Egypt where there might be some things. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Can I ask you a follow-up question about Joan of Arc? Because I remember Jean Fluide opens with these fabulous chapters, Joan of Arc and on the protest. In 2010, there was a protest in front of the Jean Joan of Arc statue. And my favorite line from, from one of the posters that are published in that book is, Butch, trans, who knows? So tell us a little bit about Joan of Arc. 
Yeah, just the two ways because that's really, I think, where uh, the exchange that we can have between uh, the reception of Joan of Arc outside France is very different and also influence the way people could think of the Middle Ages. Because of that, because the most famous character for everybody in France and that nobody wants to think of anything around uh, Joan of Arc's gender. And it's really the, the one of the most important issues that we have in France and I think is really based on the, uh, the nationalist um, uh, reading of Joan of Arc that I think is very specific to our country and doesn't have the same impact outside of France. So it's interesting to, to study that uh, deeply and I, I'm trying in the book to do a, a short history of the gender, only Joan of Arc's gender from the 15th century to the um, 19th and then 20th and then beginning of the uh, 21st century to see how uh, the perception of the gender of uh, the figure has uh, evolved. Gabby, 10 years after your intervention in trans studies, which has, was so important and got all the awards for a reason, what do you think your, your work will be 10 years down the road? Thank you for that. Again, it goes back to that question, which I think we've been circling in general around labor. So much of transgender studies, particularly the transgender scholars themselves, are working out of a contingent faculty position, non-permanent position, many of them being underpaid, going into debt to do this kind of work. We've already seen some of the founders of this field. Some of them have already had to move on to not just at other jobs in the academy, but so many of them have had to leave the academy in general. So I've one of my larger concerns is is addressing labor around that issue of if we want to give longevity to these scholars that people are going to know the names of ten years from now and will, you know, they'll be so influential and then they'll look on, you know, whatever version of Google or Wikipedia or LinkedIn exists and find oh my gosh, like they wrote this piece and then went off to work in the private sector and something else. And so we're seeing a lost generation form. So yeah, going back to the idea even of where do I see my work in 10 years, there's so much of that. I, I aspire to be working on this in 10 years and in any sort of way that connects to what I'm doing now, but I will always be present no matter what um, on the community side of things. And, you know, I think to myself, the, the founders of medieval trans studies or pre-modern trans studies are not white people, first of all. They're many indigenous people, people who have been colonized by Anglophone societies, by white patriarchal societies that have had many of their stories erased, their genders and sexualities no longer recognized, um, called sinful. They were at this long before us. But also I'm thinking about the creators of Star House, the street transvestite action revolutionaries, Marsha P. Johnson and Sylvia Rivera. Both of them practiced pre-modern studies and neither of them had the kind of advanced degrees that would have gotten them published in academia. But in the 60s and 70s, they wouldn't have been published anyway. We see very few trans scholars of color. Many of that has to do with systemic issues around white supremacy in this field, which has been a topic that has 
been coming to the forefront very necessarily so but i think about starhouse and i think about how they really put their their pre-modern work and I, there's a, such a great uh, contribution to this at the end of our collection medieval transfeminisms naming marcia p johnson's silver rivera in ways as founders of this field and that part of their work of putting it into daily practice was starhouse and building a place where trans people who are working on the streets who couldn't find, who didn't have jobs or didn't have sustainable jobs or ethically compensated jobs who didn't have place even housing would be able to come there and to operate out of to find one another support and so you know my my ultimate goal and i, I say this blake and micah heard me say this a million times that really like the win for me is anytime I see our, another trans scholar step up and say, I want to do medieval studies or I want to sh share this with others in the community, uh, the glory of the win, the legacy is the people. We're building a house. We're building a community. You know, we're trying to be siblings to one another's house sisters, house brothers, house mothers, house fathers, house parents to one another. We're we're taking mentorship where we can. So that that really for me is the number one part. And really, my favorite part of my job is going to conferences, being present, and then finding a trans scholar who comes up to me who's having a hard time, and or just the ones who are who have something to brag about, and taking them out to lunch. And those lunches have started to expand into like every year there's a couple more people joining us, and they're always happy if I just say, hey, this person is would like to join us. Is that okay? And then we go. And then, so our numbers are slowly growing, and to have a place where people don't have to feel alone, I think is so, so critical. But yeah, there's so much groundwork being done right now. Trans historical Mike Peace on Eleanor Reichner was really about how the medieval archive is speaking back against the generations of erasure that have happened. You know, if there is such a thing called the transgender turn, we have to ask ourselves, why is the period that came before not recognized as the transgender turn? Why is it happening now? I mean, it has been happening, but it's been happening um, as part of other movements. And I, I think, and part of the work now is to just trace those erasures, trace those places of representation could have happened. I think about like, for instance, my because work on disability studies and how, like, why isn't transgender issues more central in disability studies? And it's partially the, the fault of transphobic senators and House representatives in the 90s when they drafted the Americans with Disability Act. They had a specific exclusion for trans people. And that speaks volumes because, like, and we, you know, as medievalists, we know how to read the significance of erasures or the significance of exclusions because what that tells us is the very fact that they had to name trans people was a recognition that we should have been covered by the ADA, that the conversations that we've been seeing in the recent years around trans health care should have never have happened because it should have been a part of the ADA 30 years ago. And so one of the reasons that trans studies has gone the way it has through queer studies, through feminism, is in part because on a legal ground in the United States, that road of disability studies was shut to us. Um, it's, we've cracked it open. You know, disability studies has been a great ally, but that's been part of the work. What comes next? I'm One of my 
thinking of myself besides as someone just helping nurturing the community is a, being a tool maker, an intellectual tool maker. I love coming up with tools and bringing up that it's not only about a cultural shift, a cultural sea change, an epistemological sea change, but it's one where it's a methodological sea change, that the way we're doing medieval studies, not just transgender studies, but medieval studies as a whole will be changed because of the, the ways in that trans people read text, the insights we're giving, the tools we're making, the theories we're developing. Ideas like dysphoric time that I've been working on or transgender resonance, thinking of Joan of Arc's resonance with their armor and their weapons and how important that was to them, you know, speaks to a kind of human uh, object relationship that is profound, but not exclusively to just people we would call transgender today, but it's trans way of relating the experience of having an experienced or identified timeline or approach to your, to your chronological narrative your temporal narrative that runs against the timeline that you're given by either the academy that you're given by your parents, you're given by compulsory cisgender identification or cistery, cisgender history. So continuing to think along those lines is really important in showing people that medieval studies is just getting going and the way it's going to keep growing, if it's going to grow, it's going to be because of trans scholars is going to be about the work of disability scholars and, and scholars of color and women and non-binary and people and ace. So I want to see that grow. And I hope to be a part of it as much as I can be a part of it. But really, I'm just giddy to just share a room with these people. Before we do this natural uh, turn to uh, Micah's work on disability, I wanted to say a few names of um, uh, ace studies are, are really permeated by the work of uh, scholars of color. I'm thinking of Yunjun Kim, Ayanna Hawkins Owens, um, this, this amazing piece um, uh, on mommy and the asexual, uh, the, the compulsory asexuality. Um, I'm also going to mention some Eastern European uh, scholars. The, the, the Labrac has been yanked from underneath the feet of um, trans and queer scholars in Poland. Uh, the funding is not there. The institutes have been closed. But they're able to do research because we're creating these networks. So Elab of course, you, you know her. Um, but also Melissa Sanchez, and so um, and and one of my favorite people ever, who is not necessarily writing on trans studies, but is 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 a beautiful, beautiful person to read on, um, and not necessarily on medieval either. Omisa Eke Natasha Tinsley. I just wanted to say that name because it's such a such a beautiful body of work. And then of course everybody knows everybody else's work. Riley Snorton's Black on Both Sides: A Racial History of Trans Identity. Um, but especially and most especially, I think everybody is has to read uh, Roland Betancourt's Byzantine Intersectionality, Sexuality, Gender, and Race in the Middle Ages. It's an absolutely fundamental step in that discussion. Thank you so much, uh, Gabby, for pointing that out. Micah, to you, what will you be in 2030? Yeah, I mean, I, I share a lot of the same concerns with Gabby around labor and the sort of efficacy of the academy as, you know, the place to do this kind of work, um, right? I mean, part of this is hire trans people, right, to, to do, uh, you know, 
good work, but with uh, resources and, you know, access to libraries and healthcare and stability. So thinking of the, the future is always a toss, but certainly want to be in these conversations. I think something that's very beautiful about the convergence of medieval studies and trans studies is that there is a community element. I'm even thinking, Blake, of how you and Alicia uh, had like the open source glossary when you were starting that and just logging on and seeing just so many other folks on there adding and commenting and having a discussion about how we collectively want to create language for people to use in pre-modern trans studies, I think a lot of our work does operate a little bit differently and on the sidelines. And I like that our work sort of includes that community component, without which I certainly would not be published where I am or have the specific breakthroughs that I've had. It's all to do with other really good trans scholars, you know, lifting me up and helping. So yeah, I don't know. In 2030, I would love to have my book published. And what's the working <laughs> title on your book? It is Chronic Bodies, Trans Natures, and Pre-Modern Temporalities. So a larger kind of iteration of uh, a crossover between disability and trans studies. Quick questions now. So, so we're going to do a round of two quick questions. I'm going to go around and ask everybody, what's your favorite medieval source text? Gabi. Um, I'm going to give a shout out to Galwarians today because Gower is, is we're a stubborn group. We're, we're, hold, we're holding firm. because And there's so much there that uh, is sort of obliquely done. And uh, the more I read Gower, the historian, the more I see new things that have trans residences. You know, Bruce Holsinger's book, a burnable book in that whole series, imagining Eleanor Reichner, a trans woman living in the same town as Gower, who's going through the process in his fiction and as far as we can tell real life, going blind, of the fact that they sort of occupied the same space and that, of course, that, that would have impacts on both of them, and, and even if indirectly so. And then, of course, the saints. You know, I love the saints' lives. Fantastic. Clovis. Maybe I'll talk about one that I just discovered recently that what it fascinates me. It's um, a novel from the Sans Nouvelle Nouvelle, uh, which is the story of a, a trans woman called Madame Marguerite, a Scottish trans woman in the story, who became a landress. So the story ends quite all the details describing her life and how she became a job that was women at that time is quite fascinating. Fantastic, thank you. Uh, this makes me think of Wojciech of Poznań, who lived um, somewhere between uh, maybe 1520, 25 and 1561. We have a deposition, much like Eleanor Reichner's deposition, but a lot longer and with more detail. Wojciech was married to three men and had sexual partners identified as women, two beautiful silk dresses that are also described in the deposition. So I, I think the more we work, the more we see. And just like uh, Clavis mentioned for Madame Marguerite, there's a moment in that deposition where gender is publicly assigned. So you're, you're saying that trans people historically and presently are very attractive is kind of what I'm gathering from the a most, lot of people. The most beautiful, sparkly and uh, attractive, not only, not only them, but also the community 
communities around them who is supporting them and loving them and, and flirting with them and just generally creating these urban utopias that we are craving to hear about now. But turning on to Blake, Blake, for you, what is the source text from the Middle Ages that excites you most? The first one is Silence, Le, Le Roman de Silence, which is a kind of absolutely kind of classic, one of those classic, undeniably trans-medieval texts. And it's also kind of really interesting kind of Rorschach test in the sense that it seems like everybody has a different reading of it. And obviously, because I haven't published on this, I feel like nobody has done the definitive reading yet and I'm going to do it. But everybody feels like that. And that's what's so great about this text. People connect with it in such individual ways. What I really love about this text is the ways that it, I mean, we're totally talking about about trans studies, but in a way, what the Roman de Silence is doing is more like kind of critical cis studies. It's saying, look at the way cis people assign gender to their children. Isn't this actually really weird when you look at it? The other text I wanted to briefly mention is uh, Tristan de Nanteuil, which I've written about a lot, and the character of Blanchandin. Blanchandin is transformed into Blanchandin. And I love that text because it's just so, it's such a complex portrayal of gender identity. We have a period where this character who we know as a woman dresses as a man, and it really does seem to be a disguise. And yet there is a, yeah, the second part of the text where a transformation occurs, and he really is a man. And those things mean very different things to the character and to the people around them in the text. There are also some lots of really interesting kind of coming out moments in the sense that this character is known to their friends as a woman disguised as a man when they are transformed into a man. So they have to keep coming out to people and saying, no, actually, I am a man now. And it gets very complicated in very interesting ways. And as I brought out in, in the first article I wrote about the book, the text also stages this moment which Judith Butler's theory tells us is impossible, of the pre-gendered subject being free to decide upon their own gender. We have the question asked of Blanchandine, would you like to remain a woman or would you like to become a man? And that question itself is, is fascinating. It raises so many issues of consent, of whether you can, can you consent to something that you don't know yet? Or, did, or does the fact that you consent to it mean that you kind of already do know it? Is deciding to become a man something, is that, is that a decision that a woman would make? Or does, does making that decision mean that you are, you are making that decision from a place of already not being a woman? Micah, what about you? What's your favorite medieval source text? Well, it probably comes as no surprise that I am the Piers Plowman plug here. All of the different text versions as well, although I will say the C text is my favorite. And I think possibly, right, because it sort of does not scream trans, right, there's a lot of interesting ways to engage with that text with uh, trans studies, right? It's, it's already occurring sort of Right. As a dream vision, it's an allegory. There's different personified figures. We're sort of following a dreamer to seek truth, whatever that might mean. And we're seeking through different embodiments, right? Allegorical embodiments. So it's there's a lot of, I think, space to to do right trans thinking with Piers Plowman. But I am right now deep in the alchemical rabbit hole, doing like lots of work on trans animacy with alchemical text. So I'm sort of interested right now in um, 
Mercury as a figure, both sort of as an element, but as personified figure and sort of thinking about the work of transmutation and sort of the affordances of that an embodied spectrum from something like stone to body to divine ether. How, how can we sort of think about animacy in those registers? The Middle Ages are such a such a wonderfully uh, similar to the 21st century ideological moment where there are two different theories of sex. One is binary, right? Adam and Eve, Noah's Ark, and it's reinforced in many ways. But another one is not. It's a continuum or even I would say a Mobius strip. If you look at science, philosophy, natural history, medicine, the belief is that gender is a continuum. How does that happen? Well, if you're um, assigned female at birth, but your birth has been influenced by Mars, your sexual desire will make you pursue other women. So here is an explanation for, for lesbians and vice versa. Um, uh, so Mars and Venus are gendered planets. Um, Mercury changes gender. And so obviously there are individuals who change gender. Moving on to the last round of questions. Who is your favorite trans historical figure? Gabby. Honestly, I've been thinking so much about dysphoric time. Um, I have been thinking about the dysphoric time around Joan of Arc and how Joan's vision certainly creates a different temporality and different ontology there that sort of works into what I've sort of been playing around with as like a transvestite metaphysics. I think Ceylon's and a lot of the romances capture a similar kind of presence to that and the ways in which Joan has been gendered in so many different ways and claimed by so many different groups and it's I think that is definitely a figure that has transformed over time and then of course you know in the background you know especially thinking about Ceylon's but also um, the prose Merlin. Merlin is a, is another figure that is like so on the cusp of being trans and yet constantly is thwarting the lives of other trans people. Merlin is that trickster figure who's, you know, can't really trust them, but at the same time, they embody so many of the things that I think we're excited about talking about. So that that kind of whole chivalric continuum I find very exciting because it's also one that's the romance and that sort of that culture is, is it's, it's built to be adapted. It was comic books before comic books, right? It was that sort of constant, every generation has their Arthur, every generation has a Merlin. And so it's, there's something so trans-historical in both senses to that. So Clovis, trans-historical figure. I was thinking maybe of Joseph of Chanel, because we're not sure that it's a historical character, but I still think that he is and we have so many evidence to show that this person who chose to go to a male monastery where there was plenty of choice of going, really uh, well, was um, doing something personal about his life. And so I would say him as a historical figure. Blake. I was thinking about Iphis and Dianti and the way that the Iphis character is reincarnated and that story is retold throughout so many different texts and how how many different people throughout time must have read that story and felt a resonance and recognized something of themselves within that story. And also it's a kind of a trickster text in, in the sense that we have such a kind of painful in a way clash of queer readings where a reading that is that is liberatory for so many people to see the Iphis character as a trans man comes at the expense 
it seems of of erasing a lesbian relationship it's this puzzle that that you can turn it upside down and it, but i mean and, the, and i don't know i guess i feel like i want to celebrate the fact that it can mean things in lots of different directions that this has clearly been something that has fascinated people and that has been reinterpreted and and rethought and reimagined so many different times. I mean, in Robert Mills's book, Seeing Sodomy in the Middle Ages, he talks about medieval versions of this text and he talks about, I think, a 21st century novel version of, of the Iphis and Dianthe story, which... Yeah, it shows how the this even if they were never a real person, this this figure continues to captivate people and and to and to transform it, which is a very obviously trans thing to do. Micah, well, who's your favorite trans historical figure? I will probably take a literary route with this as well um, to say the pardoner because. I think the partner is just a site for a lot of conversation around uh, transness, around queerness, right? Obviously, owing to the line, Itro Hiwargeldin Oramara, with that word or perhaps being the most interesting word in the line. And I think that, right, just sort of even charting the scholarship on the partner across time, I think gives us a really good barometer for like where a medieval trans studies is headed. And of course, you know, Gabby's uh, recent work on the partner and um, in post-medieval, right? Looking at skin, transtextuality, thinking of Kim Zarin's work on the partner's intersex. So the fact that the partner can be so many things and is so capacious as a figure, I think is, is a really beautiful sort of attestation to the kind of porosity of these like medieval literary transfigures. The fact that there's many things that the partner can be is, is the beautiful part of it. I wanted to thank everybody who participated and those who couldn't. A big shout out to all of our collaborators and friends. Thank you to the Medieval Academy and thank you to everyone. Have a happy time creating new trans worlds in medieval studies. And hire trans people. And hire trans people. Hire black indigenous people of color. This has been an episode of the Multicultural Middle Ages, an anthology-style podcast series brought to you by the Graduate Student Committee of the Medieval Academy of America. Season one was produced by Jonathan Correa Reyes, Rita Mera, and Logan Quigley, with music by Anna O'Connell. For more information on the Multicultural Middle Ages, follow the links in our episode description. And don't forget to hit that subscribe button to keep up with new episodes.